Welcome back, Fuck Demons, and welcome back, Erin. Erin is an educator, a sexual health educator, and a certified yoga teacher. She loves social justice, hip-hop reproductive rights, hexing the patriarchy, and extra guap. Everybody, this is Sex News with Ray, and you can subscribe to our Patreon. Erin, how are you doing? I am so good, Ray. It's so great to be here again. I'm glad to have you back. It's been so long since we saw last saw each other. Okay, today's article is called We Need to Stop Romanticizing Unhealthy Power Dynamics in Relationships, and it's actually a student paper and a student journalist from the Queen's Journal from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And this was published November 19th, 2021. Uh, Alicia Muhammad is writing this from first a first-person perspective, and I'll, I'm just going to summarize the whole thing as this. The media perpetuates unhealthy relationship models, and it's bullshit. So Alicia describes her experiences with the forbidden love trope of a heterosexual relationship where a young woman becomes smitten with a charismatic older man who happens to be in a position of power over her. And some quotes are, while watching these TV shows, I was tricked into thinking relationships with unhealthy power dynamics were not only okay, but extremely attractive. I lusted over the male love interest, believing romance had no boundaries, including professional experience or age. Unhealthy power dynamics were dipped in steamy makeout sessions, powdered with witty dialogue and packaged in a romantic mold appearing to appealing to vulnerable teenage girls. And she continues talking about how the sexualization of high school students made her believe she needed to look and act a certain way. But the people portraying these students or teachers were all in their 20s with very small age gaps, even though they were portraying people with much larger age gaps. Alicia then goes on to describe how these representations made it difficult for her to recognize unhealthy relationships. We need to stop romanticizing unhealthy power dynamics because they allow teenagers to have distorted ideas of what love's look, love looks like. More importantly, they make young people vulnerable to harmful relationships. Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, I think unhealthy like imbalances of power are problematic for sure. And I think often they're problematic because consent can be coerced with a power imbalance um, sort of because of the implicit status and gains that are attached to complying with the assumed, you know, and then like, or sorry, like, and then the assumed social losses um, that are attached to like non-compliance, right? And so it can it truly be consensual, mature, grounded, authentic consent if a power imbalance is present, right? And so that's problematic right there. Um, but we're inundated with this trope in mainstream erotica. Like think about Fifty Shades of Grey, okay? So the series where a virgin has never even masturbated enters like into a BDSM relationship with a sociopath billionaire and finds true love, right? And like, look at how fucking popular that was, you know? Um, and so we're we're yearning, we're hungry for this to be true. And that's what that says, right? Or, or we're either like disgustedly fascinated by it that we just, we need to consume it. I don't know, but... Um, I just finished reading Mating in Captivity with Esther mm -hmm. Perel and she talks about how like erotic desire thrives on power imbalances, but that doesn't mean that's what we want in our non-erotic relationships. Like sex right. is different from life. Of course. Yeah, I agree. I feel like um, when those things have been negotiated, they're, they're absolutely sexy if they are for the people involved, right? But like in terms of any kind of partnership dynamic a power imbalance doesn't work right the very reason it does work is because someone is made to feel small and that's not that's not okay that's right. not someone in their true power right yeah um the hypersexualization of teens is super exacerbated too by inadequate sexual health education 
You know, again, if people were giving access or given access to holistic sex positive knowledge, they would recognize the choices they have in how they present sexually rather than feeling boxed in and compartmentalized into presenting in one certain way. Like all you need to be is fuckable by the time you graduate. Like who cares about any, like just be fuckable. Right. And so if we were giving people healthy conversations and resources around what true sexuality looks like, we might not see that as much. Right. Well, I remember being a teenager and experimenting with my own sexual expression. Right. Like, I mean, we we had access to what is sexy, what is not sexy. But back in back in my day. I was an emo kid, so, you know, a sexy photo was one taken from very far above your face where your chin looked very small and your eyes looked very big and, like, mm. all of that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like, I was mm-hmm. I was very much that that 14-year-old. But <laughs> I wasn't trying to be sexually attractive to adults. I was trying to be sexually attractive to other teenagers. Right, your and, peers, for sure. And I feel like the harm here isn't even just, like, teenagers seeing these unhealthy power dynamics, but adults who see this and are watching this media and watching this content and think that it's okay to sexualize youth and teenagers and youthfulness and see teenagers experimenting with their sexuality as as trying to attract an older mate when really it's teenagers just trying to experiment and they're trying to attract each other in Fully. their peer group. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And just to recognize too that like the prefrontal cortex isn't fully de- developed until one is 25 years old. And then of course we know that that's not even true because we know a lot of 25 year olds. Fuck. So um, <laughs> just recognizing that it is the adult's responsibility always to not harm others. Right. And so, yeah, if teens are expressing in a way that looks as though they're trying to attract that, that's not what they truly want. That's what they're experimenting with. Um, and they have learned is socially acceptable to get their needs met. Right. And there's one part of the teen experience is experimenting with boundaries and trying to push boundaries and and trying to see what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. They are learning new ways of of socializing and being part of society. It's that like weird dynamic of wanting to have more responsibility, but still wanting to play with Lego. Which yeah, I know adults who still play with Lego. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, but like, you know. Um, actually, you... I just laughed because there's like the, the, the Lego box. I'm with my nephews right now. The Lego box is like, it's from zero to 99. And I was like, oh, fuck those sad ass, like 100 year olds. You can't play with Lego anymore. Like, look at these limits. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think teens are still receiving their sexual education through pornography and a capitalist society that objectifies women, femmes, and youth. And so if you have ever seen a commercial or if you've ever been on any social media platform, like, how do you. How do you not believe these things to be true? And so I was just talking with a friend today. Shout out to Andre, who doesn't listen to my podcast about (laughs) sexually relevant stimuli. We were talking about uh, Henry Cavill as Geralt in Avrivia in The Witcher. Have you seen The Witcher? No. Do I need to? Yes. There's this one scene in season one where he's in the bathtub with Yennefer of Engeberg. And these are just two very attractive people. And they're in the bathtub and it's hot. And you don't see really any body parts, but you're like, holy fuck, this is fuckable. But I was telling him, uh, or he was telling me that apparently he had to like fast for days to get the right kind of like cut muscles or like fast water and food. Like it was just an unhealthy, unsustainable diet. And I'm like, but no one is actually asking for that, that appearance. And he's like, would you say that? And I'm like, If you look at movies, like I just love to compare Wolverine from the first movie to the last movie. He was just this skinny swimmer body, like slight muscle tone kind of guy. And that was considered sexually relevant and acceptable for a man to look like. And there's this male power fantasy that's now being perpetuated by all these muscles. If you ask a woman, does she find, you know, Henry Cavill and like attractive? The answer is yes. But does a woman or another person find him at a slightly less bulky, less muscular version of himself also attractive? Also, yes. 
And when we are presenting people with images and saying, this is what you need to find sexually attractive, that will form what you think is sexually attractive. So if we are now inundating younger people with these these unrealistic portrayals of male bodies, we've always done this with women's bodies, but now it's getting obscene with these, these, you know, muscles, uh, and then you are raised thinking, okay, this is sexually attractive. I could see maybe in 10 years people saying, yes, this is the only look that is sexually attractive and sexually relevant because we've been inundating people's minds as they're developing with this is sexually relevant information. For sure. Yeah. And it's insidious, right? And so um, in 10 years, we might not even know how to connect how it happened, but that that's what we're finding attractive at this point. And I think Jane Kilborn does a really great job of this in her documentary, Killing Us Softly, which looks at media portrayals of women's bodies that are quite literally turned into objects. So like they, it, a woman's leg like is the beer bottle, you know, like a pair of scissors is a, a, women, a woman's pelvis, like all of these different things. And so, of course, when we turn women into objects, we quite literally objectify them. And so and then it's easy to cause harm and perpetuate rape culture. Um, to objects. And so if we if we've seen this trend for so long with women's bodies, are we moving that direction with men as well, where we can just objectify them based off some kind of set of requirements now for them to be sexy? Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, you're a teacher. One thing that I always hated growing up is when teachers would be like, media literacy. And I took my I took a SAR, like one of the sexual attitude reassessments that we all had to take. Yeah. And I've heard that like each person who takes one gets a very different experience depending on who's putting it on. But the huh. people who were doing mine, I feel like you would have liked them. I kind of found myself rolling my eyes a bit because they would show us a piece of media and then someone, they'd be like, what did we all think? And someone would always start with, well, from a media literacy perspective, and I'm like, <laughs> are you still in university? I do not know right. anyone who says from a media literacy perspective in their right. adult life anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is very much an academic concept. And I was just like, like, I felt like I, we were expected to hate on things all the time in my, in my SAR. Like I was like, I felt like I was expected to go, this is trash and there's nothing of value to be had here. And I found myself saying things like, this is progress. This is better than it was before. Right. I would say that expecting men to have more muscles than before is not progress, though. It is definitely just um, one of the ills of society pervading every aspect of our culture. For sure. It's just capitalism at its finest. It's like, what else can we sell you? Especially because like, it's not women holding men to this like super buff standard. It's other men. So it's not even like this is for the female gaze. That's not what it's about. Do women find Henry Cavill attractive? Yes. Do they care that he is that fucking ripped? No. For sure. Slight muscle tone is more than enough for most. Right. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I agree that there's some, some pretty damaging images The the trouble too is like when you'll read any of those sort of psychological studies about how insidious it is when people don't think that they are exposed, um, to those harmful messages, but how often they actually are, right? Like how many billboards, how many commercials, how many ads are actually flitting through people's landscapes, right? And so how, um, how we're in like embedding this information at a rate that we, even if one of us thinks we're rather progressive and resistant to that, like how, uh, how powerful the messaging really is. Right. And so then when you're looking at teens um, who are just sponges, of course, like just desperate to find themselves in this messy world and looking externally for not only validation, but some kind of guidance as to like who they should be or how they should show up. Um, yeah, of course, hypersexualization is is the answer. Like that's what's going to get you likes. That's what's going to get you money. Um, and yeah. so, uh, yeah, that li- living in that adult world is 
is troublesome, especially if we're normalizing power imbalances in relationships. Yeah. I have a friend who uh, does script writing and he works in the film industry. And he and I will have lots of discussions about how like, well, you know, it'll be everything from Harry Potter where I'm like, why did they choose to make Durmstrang all male and Beaubaton all female when they were both mixed gender in the movies? And he goes, because visually it just looks more appealing. And I'm like, but does it? Or like, oh, right. why did they choose to do this, right? Like, these are the questions that I have. And also, why are they choosing to portray this woman, the only woman in the entire movie, in this way? Why are they choosing to portray the only black character in this way? These are the questions that I have, and we sort of have debates. And his response is usually like, because it sells. Like, they probably did uh, a test, and they found that more people responded more positively to this thing. And then when I realized how much content creation is a business, I wanted to throw up in my mouth and just realize that I'm so glad I'm not in the film industry. And right. And I'm a big believer that um, everyone who is creating media and content and art is responsible for their message. Uh, and other people don't agree. Uh, so I guess, like, I don't know. Who do we hold accountable? The person making TikToks? The person making movies? The, produ the producer? The actors? Like, who is actually the person who needs to be responsible for the messages that we're portraying? Right. That's a super great question because is the – is the onus on the individual or is this more societal at large, right? Are these systems that need to be reformed in general that like trickle down or is it at the individual level where we refuse to buy into this and start dismantling it from the ground up, right? And I think that we look at that with any argument, like the onus is put on all of us to fight the climate catastrophe. Well, actually, like it's like there are individual gains that we can and choices we can all be making, of course, but truly this is CEOs and corporations' right. jobs. It's actually five individuals in the system who needs to be making this choice not all right. of us is yeah well right. i also think that we forget that systems are made up as individuals so all it takes is is one person saying i don't care if this doesn't test as well i want to use this person instead right and representation matters and how do we start changing that there is yeah. one thing that i'd like to say though around this i was thinking a little bit just as we were talking now that um this power imbalance is of course so harmful for so many reasons especially because it seemed um, it seems to be attractive, I suppose, for both in this heteronormative um, sort of typecasted role where like older men can pursue younger women and that we um, not only like are okay with this and endorsing it, it's almost expected. And so, yeah, this is this is really quite um, challenging and needs to be needs to be challenged at at large. However, I just maybe want to leave some space for folks that are using this role playing to enact and heal trauma, like in the safe space and context of their own sex play. But that's a whole other podcast. So I'm going to read you a quote from Mating in Captivity. So first of all, so Mating in Captivity, page 163. I explain that sexual fantasy doesn't work like other fantasies. If people tell me they daydream about a vacation in Tahiti, I believe they want a vacation in Tahiti. The connection between what they fantasize about and what they really want is refreshingly uncomplicated. But sexual fantasies don't reflect reality in the same way. The point about sexual fantasy is that it involves pretending. It's a simulation, a performance, not the real thing, and not necessarily a desire for the real thing. And then it talks a bit about the, uh, the ravishness fantasy, right? For many women, simulations of forced seduction provide a safe outlet for sexual aggression. Female sexual aggression so contradicts our cultural notions of femininity that we can unleash it only in these imaginary transpositions. Let him, the invented assailant, express the aggression so many women are reluctant to express themselves. The widespread sexual abuse of women is a chilling backdrop to the now pedestrian rape fantasy. But in these imaginary plots, the assault is not real. 
Few women incorporate a black eye or a split lip into their erotic reveries. The sex therapist Jack Morin makes the point that fantasy rapists are notably nonviolent. In fantasy, violence is subverted by gentleness. Through the gentle man, women can safely experience the joys of healthy dominance and powerful surrender. So what she's saying to summarize is that when we fantasize about these things, we are playing both parts. And we right. are allowing ourselves to play the part that we don't feel like we are allowed to play in our everyday life. So in your mind, you're being ravished, but you are the one inventing the aggressor or the ravishment, even if it's played by a male-bodied person. Right. Which I feel like is exactly what I'm speaking to about giving space for that, especially when it's unpacking complex trauma for folks, right? And so normalizing it in high school yeah not so much giving space for those of us that need to work through that and normalizing that that is actually very quite common I think needs a little more a little more breath mm -hmm. well I've heard a lot of stories and even uh, my friend Lady Shane who's dominatrix was on this podcast and she was talking a bit about how she thought that women had to all be submissive she didn't realize women were allowed to be doms and mm -hmm. she's now one of the most popular doms in the city and Maybe. how how much of of what we put our the boxes we put ourselves into are because of the images we're being presented with, and it takes a lot to break free from the stereotypes of what we think we are supposed to be based off of the genitals we were born with most of the time. Absolutely, yeah, we gotta bust those balls. So on that note, let's take a short break, okay, and come back with a listener question. Great news, everybody. Did you miss one of the past workshops that I ran on STIs or even down the rabbit hole on pleasure and empowerment? Marissa and I are going to be rerunning our workshops as well as two new ones on a pretty much ongoing monthly basis. Head to sharewithray.com slash events to check out when our workshops are available and more information. We are back. Erin, I have a very important question for you. Does size really matter? <laughs> That's a very subjective question. Um, for some, yeah, some folks would say it absolutely does. For many, they would say it doesn't come into account at all. So I think it's just going to depend on how one defines what size represents to them. I oh. find that uh, it's always a man asking this question mm -hmm. because unfortunately, us with breasts, you can tell from the outside how big they are, how small they are. And no one ever asks a man, does breast size really matter? Because they know they're supposed to lie and say no. Right. But the truth right. is, like, physical appearance to many people does matter. Fully. And the size of someone's uh, body parts might matter to someone, if only because of the sexual pleasurable experience they're looking for. Yeah. If you don't enjoy the feeling because of the person's size, that might matter to them. But it might not keep you from being able to sexually satisfy that person. And it might not keep you from having a fulfilling relationship with that person. I think so, what matters yeah. more than size is how someone responds to that size. If Sense someone so says, well. like, yeah. right, like if you are on the smaller than average size of either penis or breast size, or you have a shallow vagina, right? Like people forget that there are shallow vaginas and deep vaginas and every body part comes in different sizes. For sure. And you might connect emotionally with someone whose body parts you don't connect with as well. But that doesn't mean you can't have a satisfying, fulfilling sexual relationship with that person. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel that often in conversations that I've had with female friends of mine, if size matters, it's on the other end of the spectrum more commonly where somebody might be like actually really well endowed and then it's painful. And so they've had to negotiate how to have pleasurable sex with a really large penis. And so, so often that question is rooted in emasculation because of pornography spectrum size issues and so so many folks are concerned with this potential smallness of their penis when many aren't actually worried about that their their large member could be causing pain and how to help negotiate that in a like a really safe way for for their partner female or otherwise of course well if we link it back to the fact that you know you're supposed to be in pain when women are supposed to feel pain during sex and also uh, you know, men are supposed to be aggressive and it should hurt a little bit for it to feel right. And yeah, we like hitting the cervix and, you know, like there's this assumption that there should be pain. And if you're doing it, then then that's correct. And that's not true at all. Right. There, if you don't enjoy pain with your sex, then you shouldn't be feeling pain with your sex. Yeah. Nice way of putting it. To open this up a little bit broader. I know that this person was probably talking about one body part, but one of the other things that we haven't touched on, I think, is uh, fat phobia. Yeah. in in sexual context and sexual settings and i know we talked a bit about sexually relevant stimuli and sexually relevant images of muscles but we don't really get a lot of representations of fat bodied people being portrayed as sexually attractive no oh for sure um and there so this is a bit this is an aside i'm gonna come back to this but one of the things that you just remind me of is the fact that um there's there's some philosophical arguments that would state that the reason um we were generally able to associate orgasm with sin was because of um, some of the enlightenment era times of, of reproductive sex being used only between heteronormative people with the purpose of, um, you know, having spawn. And so anytime there was an orgasm or pleasure derived outside of that intent, uh, it was sinful. And so very quickly we began to build the neural pathways and the associations that um, pleasure equated guilt and and even deeper than that shame right and so because this is so embedded and passed down intergenerationally even to those of us that believe we are outside of any of those clutches um, societally it's still so pervasive that we need to feel really badly to get off and we associate it with that and so we've created more and more niche avenues of um, graphic content and we've needed to like create more outlying experiences because what we would deem as pleasure now isn't doing it for us. It's like it's decaf. Right. And so this is, this is just an argument, but I feel that it speaks a little bit to that too. When we see um, not only fat phobia um, because of like what we still see as generally attractive perpetuated in the media, but now there's like a realm of fat phobia pornography as a niche element. So we, we can even still deem this to be like repulsive and disgusting. And so that if we actually are attracted to that, um, it's sinful and it's bad. I had a friend once who was so embarrassed to admit that she found larger guys attractive. And when we were like young, stupid teenagers, we did like tease her a little bit. But as I get older, I'm just like, that's just as valid of being like you can the same way that some people prefer someone who is smaller chested or bigger chested. You can feel just as attracted to people of different body shapes and sizes. And and I don't know, I remember the early 2000s having no ass was considered the most sexually attractive you could be. And now having the fattest ass is the most sexually attractive you can be. Fully. And it's going to continually evolve, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would love to see more examples of, of people of different sizes in our media. Just absolutely. Being seen yeah. as attractive in different ways. 
fully. And there are very small steps. Like you said, when you were looking at some of the media literacy components of your star, like we are making some gains for sure. We're definitely seeing more representation, but still not enough. And it's still often typecasted into these tropes of like, that's the funny single one. If she's fat, like, you know, she can't be the main character or, or like same thing the the big, the big roly poly dude is just going to be everybody's like brother in the movie. He can't be the lead, you know, like, and so we're, we're seeing more representation, but we're still not seeing it in authentic ways that represent whole people with healthy sexual experiences. Yeah. Have you seen spy with Melissa McCarthy? Not McCarthy. Oh my God. She's the anti-vaxxer, not the, the actress. It is Melissa McCarthy. Okay. Uh, so spy with Melissa McCarthy. One of the running jokes is she is a plus size woman who's working in admin or for, you know, she's the person talking in the ear of the spy. She's got access to the computer and all of those things. And she becomes a spy and they keep giving her these really ugly, dumpy, like costumes like she has to wear to be undercover, like a really bad wig and oversized glasses and an ugly cat sweater. And there comes a point where she goes rogue and she takes the credit card and she buys herself this really elegant outfit and gets a blowout. And, you know, implying that like if it's about style, it's about taste, it's not her size that's making her look unglamorous. It's the style. It's right. the aesthetic. And right. she is a very sexually attractive person who like the Italian men can't get enough of. And, you know, there's a lot of fun stereotypes and poking fun of different things. And it does point out the fat phobia in a really funny way that I really appreciated without it being like in your face. Nice. Yeah. So it was really nice. Cool. I'll check it out. Highly recommend that movie if you're looking for something fun to watch this holiday season. (laughs) I love that humor is such a medium for truth, right? And like our our most talented stand-up comics know this. They can tackle really contentious political content through humor, right? And so um, I enjoy that softer edged way of getting to the heart of an issue. Yeah, which a total other, now that I'm thinking about this, another example would be Fat Amy from Pitch Perfect. Have you seen Pitch Perfect? Yeah. So one thing that's interesting about the character of Fat Amy is that upon first watch, you think that the the punt, like the butt of the joke is that she is fat. Um, and oh, look at this woman being confident. And she's also fat. Oh, she, you know, but then you watch it again and you're like, no, she is aware of her appearance and that she is fat. And she still thinks she's attractive and worthy of love. Right. And, you know, Jokes on you, bitches. Right. But like the the jokes aren't necessarily that she's fat and therefore undeserving of love. The joke is like she's just really oblivious to a lot of social settings. And the way that she says certain things is just very funny. Like she's a good singer. She's a good dancer. She's all of these things. But the way she presents herself is a little ridiculous. Right. But the butt of the joke isn't her weight. Right. It's the obliviousness. Love it. I love that shit. Yeah. And I, I just want to like call out all of those subjective things, right? If we're going to talk about like does size matter, does fat matter? Like those, these are subjective, but we have to check our intention behind it. Like, is this because this is some externalized value that I've since internalized? Like society is telling me that these things matter or do I genuinely feel a lack of attraction to that or a real, like, am I really compelled? Um, you know, same way like with vanilla sex, like vanilla sex can be so fucking hot, like sensual romantic lovemaking that's based in like uncovering what your lover wants and receiving pleasure fully like that doesn't need to be shamed for the folks that it works for right like I'm it's not like but I'm not judging anyone who needs their fucking foot in a bear trap and needs to be set on fire to come like that's you know the age to their own but we just have to remember that it's totally individualized like individualistic and we have to honor that truly like that's what real feminism is is choice I think we're going to end it there, especially the part where you said coming to your foot in a bear trap and being set on fire. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Erin, can people follow you if you want them to follow you? But yeah, be nervy and check me out. At Salt and Fable, correct? You got her. 
Join the Deviants Defining Elite at patreon.com slash sexnewswithray. Big thank you to our Patreon subscribers again. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at sexnewswithray. Submit a listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email me at ray at sharewithray.com. DM me through Instagram at wifebayray or follow me on Twitter and TikTok, also wifebayray. Follow me on Instagram and OnlyFans at Razor Latex. And this podcast is produced by me and engineered by Josh from Josh T Films. We are hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. The theme music is by Blank and Brilliant, and our logo is by Dolly Shocks Photography.